Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. We have a very special guest joining us in just a moment. I think all of our guests are very special, but this one is particularly unique, and I'll explain why in just a couple of minutes here. Before we do that, as always, this episode, as with all DPS episodes, it may be free to listen to, but it's not free to make. So the entirety of this episode is going to be available to patrons of DPS only. If you're not a patron, you're going to get a nice little preview, a little teaser of the argument. If you'd like to hear the entirety, please head to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. If you are independently wealthy, if you are the fail son of some big industry billionaire, if you work in Silicon Valley and you'd like to be a class trader, please get in touch. But until then... This podcast has to run on real American dollars. So I appreciate the support of my patrons. If you are not a patron and you like what DPS is all about, you think it's important, you'd like to see it continue into the years, many, many years to come, please become a patron today. And apologies in advance for having to put stuff behind a paywall at all, but it's just the political economy of the enterprise right now. I hate it. I would love to see some of these socialist media ecosystem, uh, you know, projects come together, pull their resources so that we can make this a free and available to the masses without any economic pressure whatsoever to survive. But until then, I rely on my patrons to keep doing this. So head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits. You know what to do. Our guest today is somebody with whom I have many things in common and, and, and many things is like very much not in common. <laughs> James Schneider is joining us today. He spent some years as the UK equivalent of the press secretary to, you know, Jeremy Corbyn. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, He also, prior to that, co-founded a little organization called Momentum. I don't know, maybe you've heard of that too. He is now the comms director with Progressive International. We're going to be talking quite a bit about that. As you might have expected, those things I have absolutely nothing in common with James. I've spent my past four to five years as a layabout podcaster and grad student dropout. Uh, What we do have in common, however, was a very dear, dear friendship with the late Leo Panich. Our analysis that we gained from Leo and his co-thinkers and that wing of the democratic socialist left comes through. Uh, We've got quite a mind meld when it comes to strategy, tactics, and I am really, really pumped to have him on the show. James Schneider, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Thanks. Thank you for having me on. Uh, You are not known to my audience in the way that you ought to be known. And I love having people on like you. You are quite accomplished, uh, uh, very accomplished. You were comms director for Jeremy Corbyn for a time. You are currently a communications director for the Progressive International. You're a socialist strategist. You're writing a book about socialist strategy. You advise communications and campaigns for trade unions in Great Britain and beyond internationally. Uh, You were just mentioning off air that you monitored and kind of witnessed the elections and situation in Ecuador, as well as Peru, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. Really exciting development. So you are no slouch, my friend, one of the more accomplished people I've ever had on the show. But I would venture to say that many people in my U.S. audience probably have not encountered you or your work yet. And so I'm always really excited to introduce my audience to uh, somebody of importance. So pleasure to have you on the show. That's very kind. One part of what you said is un- is undoubtedly true. I'm sure most people listening to my voice right now have never heard it before. 
but the bits that it's um, more accomplished than most of your guests, I mean, I, I have actually listened to your podcast for many years, so I know that that's not actually true. <laughs> well, but we'll, we'll take but turns, anyway. we'll take turns uh, trying to yeah. try to outcompete each other uh, on the humble factor. <laughs> uh, we'll see. You, you won this round, uh, but, I'll, but I'll come back on you. So uh, let's talk about Peru. You are uh, comms for the Press of International. It's in the title. You guys have a very internationalist focus. First of all, give us a little scoop about what Progressive International is and what it's up to. And then let's talk about some of the latest news coming out of Peru. Let's hope it's not reversed in a coup by the time this hits the airwaves next week. But we'll see. Yeah, no, we, we pray. Um, so uh, the Progressive International is, uh, was founded just over a year ago. And it's uh, an international network of left progressive parties, trade unions, social movements and people, um, which has, you know, a council of kind of big names, people that you've heard of, like um, Jeremy Corbyn and Noam Chomsky and Naomi Klein and Cornel West and Yanis Varoufakis and Aruna Roy and people like that. But it's really made up of its members who are movements, parties, trade unions um, from around the world. And it's trying to build, or we're trying to build, an infrastructure, a global infrastructure for progressive forces, because the forces of the right and the forces of capital are almost by their very nature and definition, well networked with each other. But the the left, you see disarticulation, disarticulation on linguistic, national and regional grounds, but also on issues and, and sectors. So we try to bring you know uh, bring together on that and we've got a whole you know with a whole load of exciting things we've got um uh, we're holding a, a summit for vaccine internationalism uh, 18th to the 21st of june um where we're bringing together the governments of eight or nine global south countries vaccine manufacturers and political and sort of major political figures trying to reach some kind of agreement to speed up vaccine rollout in the global south which is currently being strangled by a toxic combination of vaccine nationalism from rich world states like the EU and the, and the UK and the deference to big farmers, bottom line and super profits through um, intellectual property rules. Um, so, yeah, we're doing a range of things. But something else that we've been doing is uh, started doing election monitoring. We were in Bolivia um, for the historic elections there, which managed to reverse the, the, the coup d'etat of November 2019 that ousted Evo Morales and, um, uh, and, his, uh, and the movement towards socialism. We were in Ecuador for the two rounds there, and I was in, I was in Ecuador for the second round of, uh, of the elections there, which witnessed um, uh, the defeat of Correismo by, um, by the right. And we've got a delegation, although sadly I'm, I'm not there, we've got a delegation in, in Lima, Peru right now, who have been observing the, the elections there, which look like the leftist school teacher outsider Pedro Castillo looks to have very narrowly beaten uh, Kaiko Fujimori, who is the, the, the daughter of the you know, basically fascist former leader of the country. So in, in a real freaky election, there were so many candidates in the first round that basically these two seemingly rather fringe candidates from, from right and left were the top two and went into the runoff, which which is seen from you know all the reports on the ground has been hugely vibrant election with a huge groundswell of support for for Pedro Castillo, who you might have seen on on social media people waving around pencils. He's a school teacher and that's his yeah, that's his yeah. symbol. It's been an amazing bit of political comms. 
but the election is unbelievably close. And hopefully, you know, ho- hopefully they won't be reversed through extrajudicial or, or, or military means, obviously. But we've got a delegation on the ground watching for that. They're data scientists who've been monitoring the results. We put out a statement this morning saying that, you know, the, the claims by the right of um, widespread fraud, which they only started claiming when they were behind and very late in the day, um, are, are baseless. And we, we, we've said that their base is based on both the on-the-ground uh, monitoring that our mission has has carried out, but also from uh, details of the data science work that we've done analysing the, uh, the the actors, the, the sort of summary results from each polling table um, and how, they, how those come in. And that is remarkably important in terms of getting or countering the, the early narrative that's going to emerge there, right, about voter fraud and uh, various yeah, I mean, corruption and, you know, all the, that kind of thing that that just crams and jams the airwaves. It's very hard to reverse once the facts come in. And so having uh, groups that, like that's on the ground is, is really, really crucial. Yeah, that's precisely that's precisely why, uh, you know, why we're there. Um, because in Bolivia, what happened in, in 2019 was um, uh, there were there were claims of of fraud, which turned out to be totally false claims of fraud, which was used as a pretext by for a military coup. And so, you know, defending popular, you know, the popular sovereignty is, um, you know, yes, on the international scale, that's about doing battle with the IMF, with with big capital, with those interests which are squeezing uh, squeezing countries with trade deals, with intellectual property rules, and so on. But it also means preventing or you know having eyes on the uh, domestic oligarchy, the domestic ruling caste, so to prevent um, or to raise the costs, raise the uh, and, and reduce the impunity for uh, anti-democratic, anti-popular moves. Right. We saw following Bolivia, we saw a number of small, relatively small think tanks and research groups like CEPR uh, uh, in, in the United States and D.C. had a couple yeah. of uh, analysts on to kind of talk about that. And they were able to counter that narrative in a really important way, uh, you know, because otherwise uh, you know, the the frauds win um, outright unchallenged. Uh, so very glad to see that you are there. You know, the Progressive International, you know, might uh, some kind of hardened Marxist might scoff at this uh, found formation um is a bunch of kind of celebrity leftists kind of doing their thing but you guys are doing real rooted and grounded work and you know people can you know a lot of uh, a lot of my opponents you know ideological opponents here in the united states might kind of uh, chirp about internationalism and how democratic socialists are insufficiently internationalist uh but uh you know that stuff doesn't emerge out of thin air does it you have to have the actual networks and the actual connections and people on the ground working together across national contexts it's not it's something that has to be built it's just like any other institution isn't it and so really glad to see you there and um love for you to kind of talk more about uh how your experience and kind of networking and building across national contexts plays into your uh strategic thinking because it's something again internationalism is sort of a slogan bandied about on, uh, by many on the left and for good reason uh, but uh, exactly how that plays out is uh, fuzzy at best, abstract often and fuzzy at best. So let's we're going to bring that back in at, at numerous points. The reason why I brought you on the show is because you wrote a fascinating series for Novara, our friends over at Novara in the UK. It's called How We Win. And you dedicated this series to uh, my my late our, our friend and late mentor, Leo Panich who urged you uh, to, to write this series. So I don't know. I mean, I, hell, my audience is probably absolutely sick and tired of me talking about Leo, but I'm never going to stop. So let's talk about Leo for a minute. 
how did his work kind of influence the way that you are thinking through this question of left strategy in the 21st century and beyond post-COVID dealing with parties, movements inside, outside the state, in and against the state, all of these amazing slogans that Leo and his uh, co-thinkers have have thought through over the years? Yeah, I mean, Leo was, was an incredibly, so, uh, I would say, pragmatic and, and complex thinker who could simultaneously keep in his vision you know all these different all these different elements you were just laying laying out some of them and how they interact with each other with still having a real sense of clarity about the direction we should go in and fundamentally having one which is about how do you build uh, progressive social forces the self-organization of uh, of the working class and the capacities and the capabilities of uh, the working class to act for itself, um, and that that plays out on every terrain of struggle, um, and that we you know therefore we have to have a, a, a comprehensive strategy that engages with all of those levels, um, and it's not you know it's not good enough to just look for shortcuts or just only focus on on, on one part or another. And you, I mean, you can see this in every bit of his, his work. I mean, not just on on social strategy, but um, uh, on um, his great book with um, with Sam Gindin, uh, The Making of Global Capitalism, the, the same kind of really nuanced thinking about the relationship between the state and empire, between capital and the state, the relative autonomy of them, but also their, you know, how they're, they're, they're structurally inflected with each other, is just seem, it's, once you get your head around it, it makes it, it's very clarifying. So uh, it's had a very, very substantial uh, effect on me. And I, I was, I was, I had a great compliment the other day from a sort of friend of mine and, uh, and a sort of n- another sort of mental figure who, who said this to me, but said it as a criticism, um, was that my, my, you know, in sort of criticizing this series, says, oh, you know, it'd be far too much like Leo Panic. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's fantastic. That's really that's a nice thing yeah, yeah. Well, what what are the I was gonna say, writing you know, I, I would be I'd be absolutely nerve-wracked uh but writing a, a a series like this. It's a big responsibility. You're talking about a lot of things and very kind of, you know, short, pithy statements. These uh, articles I will definitely be linked to in the show notes. People should read them and check them out. They're short and pithy. You can read them in 10 minutes which is quite a, a feat to talk about, you know, how do we win the media in 10 minutes? Uh, how do we win the world, interna- socialist internationalism for the 2020s and beyond in 10 minutes? Uh, quite a feat. Uh, but, you know, in, any, any uh, you know, students or mentee of Leo would know that as, as supportive of a man he was, he was, you were likely to get an earful about the things he thought you got wrong, even, even as you were writing about things that he oh, urged yeah. you to write about. And so <laughs> his passing, at least, uh, if we can put a little uh, positive spin on that, at least spared you. Uh, his often scathing criticism, of course, in a, in a most loving and comradely way possible. <laughs> so, uh, let's let's get into that series. Um, what sparked you to write it? Of course, it's in the, it's in the long, grand, proud legacy of you know socialists talking about social strategy, which is kind of what we do best and what we ought to do more of. We don't do enough in, in some senses today. Um, you know, going back to Ralph Miliband and Andre Gortz and Nikos Polansas, and of course, um, you know, following Leo Panitch's lesson as well. Um, with Colin Lees, of course, writing about the end of, you know, uh, socialism, the British Labour Party. So uh, give us some context here. Why did you write this series? Um, so I, I'm supposed to be a little bit personal. So I, um, I've left working for Jeremy end of January 2020. 
um, he was still, you know, so we lost the election in December 2019 and he was still leader until the beginning of, of April and there was leadership election. So I, I left there and then a couple of weeks later I went over and had a depressing coda in the um, Rebecca Long Bailey campaign. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, I joined probably second week of February and we were, I mean, it looked pretty dire already that, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to win right. and we might lose quite badly, which indeed we did. And so then after, you know, then when, when Keir won, you know, I, I desperately needed, I desperately needed a break. Um, I'd done, uh, you know, the previous five years had been incredibly intense. My, uh, my job in like US terms, I was Corbyn's press secretary. Right. So I dealt with the media all day long, every day, seven days a week at, you know, early in the morning, late at night. Um, and obviously, a lot of the time it was extremely conflictual because yeah. um, you know uh, Corbyn, because he challenged power, got um, you know got a, got a really you know really tough time. Obviously, but I mean also the the, the British media is uh, is substantially to the right of the US media, at least the printed media. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of print media in the US has a kind of um, liberal centrist. Bias, liberal, cosmopoli- liberal cosmopolitan yeah. bias, whereas, yeah, the, the, so, the social basis so, is far to the right, I would say, of the, the British press. More, uh, you know, scandals and uh, uh, that type of thing. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the British press is basically owned by three billionaires, um, and it's, it, it, it's, extremely, it's extremely right-wing, uh, predominantly. And then there's, you know, the, the Guardian, which is a sort of, you know, centre-left liberal paper, um, and there's a, a couple other bits like that. But, I mean, you know, basically the printed press is extremely on the right and then broadcast is regulated, much better regulated than the US. So it is less um, crazy, uh, but it does take its lead from from print far too much and the news agenda set far too much. So basically, you know, to cut along, I was, I was, I was burnt out and um, really ready for a break. To put it lightly, so I, let's let's put a finer point on this because I know you're again you're trying to out humble me. I won't let you do it, James. Uh, you know you you were basically the human shield. Uh, as, as much you know as as, as Jeremy had to eat uh, you know miles and miles of shit as we'd say here in the U.S. You were basically his human shield and it, basically vetting the calls, taking the calls from every scandal that broke, every uh, accusation, every just ridiculous claim made by the media and his adversaries, both inside and outside the party. Uh, you had to yeah. kind of uh, deal with what was that what was that like in the moment did you sort of question your career choice your career path at any point in time let's talk about well, that i mean no i never questioned it because it wasn't a career i mean I, you know i i i fell into this you know by by accident i was a i was a africa focused journalist mm-hmm. and i had two weeks off work and i went to volunteer on jeremy's first leadership campaign and basically never left and I ended up setting up momentum and and so on so you know, it's not like I set about to go work in in the media and politics. I don't really like the media or politics very much. You know, definitely not Westminster politics and and lobby journalism. I mean, they're really, really not where I'm where 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 I'm interested. So, you know, I was doing it for a reason, and I never felt like I like I I, I shouldn't be doing that. I mean, it, I you know, looking back on it, I I did have to have basically high levels of emotional repression in order to be able to just stay calm and deal with, you know, deal with just a huge level of conflict every day, an unhealthy amount of conflict every day. Yeah. Um, uh, and anyway, so, you know, that 
that um you know that took its toll so I I, I really needed a break I mean I was and I, I you know I couldn't sleep for a while afterwards and um yeah it was it was genuinely really quite tough um which I suppose it always was going to be and you know I'm sure to a different degree there's something going on in the US left but like you can look across the UK left and you can see basically everybody in some kind of way is playing out their grief and their trauma at, at the loss of our incredible hopeful project right um and that plays itself out in in different ways but anyway throughout if, that if, if i might say i'm sorry to interject here i think it's important for the listeners to hear that you suffered i think it is I, i've I've made, I've made a turn in the last couple of months to talk more about politics in the, in the realm of the total human experience and i think yeah. it's really important to hear that i think that, that that the most uncharitable and these are these people are probably not listening. They've been filtered out over the years because they have their own sort of niche podcast they listen to now. But the most the most uncharitable, uh, uh, you know, commentators or uh, Twitterati, whatever, uh, you know, participants might look at you as, a, as an establishment guy who who was a grifter who 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 you know threw through the thing on purpose or wasn't on the side of the workers or whatever you know easy for him to say you've really suffered and you really struggled and it, it really mattered to you and it really matters to everyone I think in, in a way that um, I think people need to they need to hear this yeah anyway I don't know that yeah, seems, no, it, seems it, profound it, to me to, to kind of face down some of the cynicism and some of the kind of uh, really easy claims that are being tossed about. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it's been it's been eighteen months now since we lost the general election, and and I think I'm I would say I'm still heartbroken. Um, uh, and the loss. I mean, I found when I stopped working, there were there, you know there were two things that was to come down from. I mean, one is coming down for the adrenaline, and that's you know a lot of that is very physical. Coming down through the adrenaline, coming down from the stress so that plays that you know that plays out. And the other one is coming down from the hope. I mean, it is a hell of a drug and a hell of a motivator. Mm. Um, and it's very, very painful. It's very, you know, very painful to to lose it. But, you know, I was feeling that most acutely, um, you know, last last summer and then actually, um, you know, after the uh, last autumn, after there was the EHRC report and Jeremy was suspended from the party and so on, you know, I had a bit of a, you know, a, a small relapse, I would say, say then. But, you know, throughout the summer, I was, uh, the, um, the first bit was really nice. Was like, I, I you know, got to April, I turned off my phone, and I just wrote, wrote long emails back and forth with a few correspondents. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some, you know, it was sunny, I'd escaped the countryside, everyone's life was weird, because it was the beginning of lockdown. And I was, I kind of, you know, thought maybe I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And I was writing with Leo a lot, we were exchanging long emails and then we would Skype and we would talk about things and we were sort of talking these things through. Um, and he was always saying, you know, you need to, you know, you, you, you need to write something, you need to do something. And I was, I was too, I was really too burnt out to, to yeah. do very much. Um, but then um, I, I moved back to London, I think in October of last year. And at some point you, you'll have to tell me, when but i think around then i did this this into this uh, interview i found extremely cathartic with um uh on navara mm-hmm. uh, with aaron bastani where i was just sort of saying what i thought had, you know my assessment of what had happened particularly with the brexit process 2018 2019 mm-hmm. um and i found that very um cathartic uh and i ended with saying some things that i thought you know the left could do now some strategic things i thought the left could do now 
and um, Leo and Colin were both, you know, on to me immediately saying, you know, you must turn that into a book. You must blah, blah, blah. You must blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we, yeah, we yeah. spoke about it, you know, quite a lot. I was slow in getting it together. Um, and then, and then, you know, I was working on it when Leo died and, you know, that's quite a motivator to, yeah. to get something out the door. And anyway, now I am turning it into, um, you know, I'm, I'm broadening it out a lot, but turning it into a book, which will come out at some point next year. So I suppose I'm doing what I was instructed to do just uh, at, a, at, a, at a slower pace. This has been something that I've been calling for from my sort of lazy pulpit for the past four years. So I'm glad to see it come to fruition. I think it's really important that uh, the people who have been embedded in this uh, these movements over the past four years, especially inside and outside the state, ought to use that that uh, that grounded, rooted experience in, in order to turn to theory and then action and practice and strategy. And um, there's no better framework, at least, you know, I, people aren't going to find this surprising. I think there's no better framework than the one that uh, the type that Leo and uh, Sam Gendon and some others that I've had on the show uh, many times put forward um, about building power inside and outside the state, in and against the state, and these kind of sort of cross-national, transnational dealing with the, you know, the 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 uh, imperatives of capital and, the, you know, the contradictions of class inside and outside the state, um, you know. The, the bureaucracy and what it means to to go into the state and, and as a and, you know and party and party democracy and uh, the the, need, the demand to democratize society to overcome um, you know uh, well hell laborism which is something that uh, you were accused of in a comradely fashion but we'll get to that towards the end of the interview or the social democratization uh, which is really the death knell of any serious social uh, social project for socialism. Uh, so there's just so much there. It's just so rich and and um, incredibly rich. Let's let's go a piece by piece. Your first installment here was uh, the movements, how we win. And of course, uh, I, I would presume starting with the movements was a quite uh, intentional choice. Starting yes, with the people, uh, starting with the groundswell and 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 that energy that must kind of ground and in, in, in many ways precede any party formation or certainly going into the state. So let's, let's start there. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose my, you know, my understanding, my analysis, it, you know, rests on the Gramscian concepts of the war of manoeuvre and the war of position. Um, so the, the war of manoeuvre is like the surge where you're in open conflict. And that's what we were in really um, with the Corbyn leadership, you know, we were they were trying to extinguish us, and we were trying to make uh, we were trying to make an advance. And then outside of those periods, it's the war, it's the war of position. It's slower, well, and you know, social change struggle or struggle for social change toggles between those 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 two things, mm -hmm. and that is laying the ground for whatever the next surge will uh, will be. It's it's securing uh, a better position, or it's hopefully securing a better position for progressive forces. Um, to take advantage of next time, because you know when Jeremy won in 2015, you know the, the left was in an impossibly weak position, other than the fact that suddenly we captured the leadership of um, you know one of the, one of the two major parties. You know, right. uh, trade union membership had been falling for 35, 40 years. Um, then there were desperately few left uh, publications, intellectuals, public figures, media. Um, uh, level of organization, I mean, level of organization within the party, within trade unions and so on and so forth. I mean, there, we did have the, the, you know, the left had the leadership of, of some, some trade unions, notably 
you know, Unite, CWU, and so on, which which was you know, which which was substantial. And there was a lot of a lot of backfilling to do. So now, you know, the reason for starting with with movements after we've had an you know we've had an extreme focus on the party for five years, and that was correct. That was the right thing because what else? You know what what are you going to do when you have you know you have a socialist leader of the Labour Party who is actually you no know, is 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 a Democrat like is that you know is people first is democratic is the movementist. Um, wants to turn the party into a movement party uh, and to pursue socialist policies, you know, and have and is an internationalist and is strong as hell and unapologetic about those things. Right. You, it, it, it would be really myopic to say, well, we're not really that bothered about whether he stays in position or not, because really it's about the long term struggle and we should be building, you know, independent organization or whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, because it just doesn't it doesn't flow with how people are actually politicized. You no, know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people were politicized in the UK over the last five, six years during the Corbyn moment, and uh, public discourse shifted dramatically, shifted to the, to the left. Public opinions on a whole range of issues shifted very much in a in a social democratic direction. Um, so it would be it would be peculiar not to. But we're not in that position. We're not in that position now. We don't have uh, the, the the party vehicle, um, and uh, you know we don't want to have all of our all of our energies going into that. And actually, if you look back through um, the various revolts against status quo, against the system, against neoliberalism that happened since the two thousand eight financial crisis, I'm gonna, this is in the UK context, but there are US uh, analogs for all of them, pretty much. Sure. You know, first of all, we had um, the the we had the student movement right. um, in 2010, 2011. Um, we had Occupy. We had UK Uncut. There was an, then there, um, uh, there was an anti-austerity movement. Then at the same time, you have the rise of um, uh, Scottish nationalism uh, in in Scotland. The Green Party surges in membership. UKIP, the the sort of um, uh, right populist um, anti-EU party, goes up to nearly twenty percent in the polls, gets eighteen percent or something like that in the twenty fifteen general election. Uh, then there's then there's Corbyn uh, himself, Brexit, the twenty seventeen election. Then you've got uh, Extinction Rebellion and the and the Fridays with Futures Kids Climate Strikers. Then there's Black Lives Matter last summer. You know, there's yeah. there, there, it's really this cycle of and i'm not saying they're all they, they don't you know i'm i'm including the vote to leave i'm including ukip i'm including things which are you know the greens which are not necessarily a socialist thing in that panorama because you know what what we're seeing is is challenge after challenge to you know or to, to consent to consent within the system and the, the you know what we had the opportunity to do with the with the party was to try to grab that and run with it in a in a progressive direction, in a in a socialist led direction. Um, so you know, looking around what we have now in in the UK, there is huge energy, and I I, I think this summer we're going to see a real wave of um, of protest because you you know I go you know, if you go to the the Palestine uh, demos recently mm-hmm. or to 
um, the ones against the pro that the, the the government is trying to basically make protest illegal with a police bill, and there's a wave of protests and demonstrations. Um, uh, I mean, these are very radical. They 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 feel much younger, much more female, much more diverse, and much more radical than the protest, the anti-austerity protest wave of you know 2013, 14, 15. And, you know, also likewise with there was there were these uh, uh, incredible feminist protests after the killing of by an off-duty police officer right. by um, a young woman walking home from her, walking home from her friends mm-hmm. uh, and Sisters Uncut were, were, were incredible. So, you know, that's where the energy is coming from. So if I, may, so if I may sort of summarize, if I may summarize for, for my U.S. audience in particular, what you're, what you're characterizing here is what you've, you've written here. I'm summarizing your work and. Leo's, of course, as well as this movement from protest to politics, right, that emerges yeah. in the movement of the squares and Occupy, the, the uh, student movement in the, in the UK, which preceded uh, Occupy um, and, and um, really uh, ushered in that in a, in a slightly different inflection in the UK, which is quite interesting, I think, which I think maybe perhaps uh, exp- this, is a very, this is a very hot take, James, but I think the way the student movement evolved really expedited the, the, the transition to politics in the, in the British context. Uh, I think you all were on to that a little bit faster, perhaps because of the way that the students sort of uh, formed institutions and had certain kind of uh, political, uh, well, they had political institutions to sort of flock to rather than have to sort of build them from scratch or just kind of having a more kind of vaguely anarchist zeitgeist in the United States uh, that followed the kind of the WTO protests in the 2000s, right? So we were a little slow to the game. And, but that's a hot take. We can talk about that. But I think it really uh, was interesting in terms of, of why you saw the rise of Corbyn uh, before Sanders, perhaps. Um, and, and, and also, anyway, just to back up on that, we're now seeing uh, – um, I don't want to call it a pendulum swing. That's way too Polanyi and it's too liberal uh, for me. But we're seeing a return to protest, but under um, on the basis of the, many of the gains that we made during the politics phase. Right. So, the, you know, facing down some of the cynicism, I think, on the left as well. Here we go. You know, you know these these. These uh, these wackos and extension rebellion. We're back to the WTO days in 2000. It's like not entirely. You seem to be a lot more optimistic. Is there cause for optimism there? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think there are because, um, you know, the Extinction Rebellion people and the, at least in the UK, and the Black Lives Matter people and the Palestine Solidarity Campaign people and Sisters Uncut people, um, it's not like they didn't exist over the last five or six years. Most of those people were in the Labour Party. Most of them were, you know, were part of that project uh, as well. You know, not all of them, of course, but but they were. And it is possible to link those together. And in fact, they, you know, that's what they're doing. Um, Black Lives Matter in the UK and Extinction Rebellion are organising lots of their demos together. These groups are are coming together, but and they're also still coming together with some political leadership. I mean, Jeremy. Uh, speaks at and his peace and justice project endorses a number of the uh, you know a number of these things. Some of our, our younger socialist um, Labour MPs like Zara Sultana and Bel Rabiraadi speak at the uh, speak at these uh, these demos and are very politically connected with this you know basically new uh, new strata new layer of um, of of sort of more radical activists. 
So uh, I, I don't think it's just this total reversion. Now, the challenge for us, of course, is how do we help you know, articulate those things together in some way right. while we don't have the, you know, we don't have the, 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 the single central horizon. You know, that's what we had when Corbyn was, was leader of the party, right. is basically every movement could see that their strategic goal was get Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister, because even from a defensive point of view, their lives will be easier. You know, they're less likely to be um, you know, illegally infiltrated and spied on and arrested and whatever. Um, but also many of their demands could get taken through into government or at least they'd have a government that, uh, that would listen. We don't have that now. So the question, and this is one of the things I'm, I, I lay out in, in the party chapter, the party essay, is about creating some kind of, you know, non-party party-like vehicle that isn't running on a different um, electoral line to the Labour Party, but can provide some central political leadership and can be some vehicle that can uh, coordinate and cohere with, uh, with, you know, with different movements as they are coming forward. And also, you know, make sure that the Labour movement is fundamentally connected with these other you know these other types of movements which are which are springing up in this new layer of of um, of younger activists because you know, the, you know the, if you knit together all the progressive forces in society it's quite powerful one by one we lose right yeah we should we should form an organization maybe call it something like um, inertia um, <laughs> so, something about like you know uh, moving forward kind of thing you know. Um, Oh, well, are, are you not sort of characterizing momentum or, or is this are we going to get into some uh, maybe some uh, uh, scandalous oh, gossip here about why you perhaps feel like momentum is no longer that vehicle in the British context? Or is that not what you're suggesting at all? You're talking in more kind of general terms. Uh, no, I mean, let's get let, let's get into the momentum question. I mean, yeah. obviously, I think momentum is a fantastic organization. I'm I'm biased. I um, <laughs> I I. I uh, helped set it up and was national organizer for it before before I moved over to work for Jeremy directly in in October 2016. So, and then, but I mean, I think it it does a lot of fantastic stuff and it's absolutely vital organization and it is the institutional legacy that we have out of the Corbyn project. You know that 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 is it is what we have. Is it perhaps but, too narrow for for what you're proposing here? Well, it, it, it's does it have the you know what you know, what are we what are we talking about? We're talking about something which has the authority mm-hmm. to to lead and to cohere different interests and to coordinate different interests. Mm-hmm. And I think that for a number of quite understandable and contingent reasons about what momentum had to do, what, you know, while Jeremy was leader. And then also, I think quite possibly some mistakes that that undercut the organisation itself made over you know, the selections of some parliamentary candidates, which alienated a lot of the you know parts of the parts of Momentum's membership. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it probably isn't a, a big enough or strong enough organisation to play that role just itself. I, I mean, in theory, that would be ideal. In theory, that would be perfect, and I wish that were the case. Perhaps too much, perhaps too much baggage, and I think that you know this is really an issue here that we're going to have to talk about here, maybe a little off the cuff here, but uh, the the, the, 
the question of organization has never been an easy one for the left, has it? Right. Uh, no, no, we, no. we we have a very I mean, and that's we have very high bars uh, for for things like democracy and representation and participation uh, bars that, you know, uh, many other commentators. I'm not the originator of this kind of uh, argument, but, you know, other factions, other ideologies, political ideologies don't have these difficulties. The conservatives just have a top-down bureaucratic organization, and it's quite effective and efficient, and it works, uh, you know, to, to their aims. <laughs> the left ends up squabbling about process for years, but how can you not when you hold uh, those ideals uh, so so highly, you know, as as a core of your your politics? So it really is a built-in contradiction to left organization, isn't it? It is, and it happens particularly when you slow down. So when things are moving fast, mm -hmm. when you're going in a particular direction, basically action and victory right. hears things. Then when you stop, people get very introspective and, and navel-gazing, and it can get quite sectarian and, and, um, and counterproductive. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not calling for the perfect democratic left organisation uh, you know, the thing I'm calling for is an alliance between existing things, an alliance between, to begin with, the left trade unions, Momentum, and the the the, the left Labour MPs, the Socialist Campaign Group of MPs, which would then, which could then broaden out, and then you could broaden out to the different types of social movements, um, you know, long-standing ones like you know, campaign for nuclear disarmament, with newer ones like Sisters Uncut, Black Lives Matter, and so on, into some kind of you know, coordinating body that has that's resourced that can you know basically have you know can have a comms operation, can have a research operation, can provide you know centralized legal support um, for for voting and and that kind of thing. Rather than trying to propose what would the ideal um, uh, left organization be, because I think that's a very difficult question right. um, and 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 there is a balance between be, between democracy and and navel gazing and that's right. stopping action and I agree I with you but I, I'm going to push you a little bit here because you are definitely the man to answer the question here I'm going to push you a little bit on this because yeah. I wonder if that's not too simplistic of of um, a delineation you're making here because you know organization and, and an authority, is ultimately uh, they, these are ultimately political questions. You're bringing people under the same representative umbrella. Uh, you're you're unifying uh, things like comms, communications, uh, rhetorical strategies and tactics. You're unifying things like resources about what uh, what do we prioritize, what questions should we research, uh, to what aim should we address. Uh, you know our our efforts. These are ultimately political questions, and to, so I guess the question for me then is: Is there enough um, sort of political cohesion uh, among those movements to to ground a, a broad and general enough aim that's still like purpose driven, right? Towards socialism, that is towards because that's I mean that's this is the issue faced by DSA. Uh, DSA in the United States Democratic Socialist of America is a, a big tent organization, and it always has been. It's something they take a lot of pride in, and I think it's probably the best fit for the state of the U.S. left at the moment. But the, the issue becomes then that these organizational questions that are, are sort of couched in that way are, are actually political questions. It's not a question of, well, you know, we need a stronger nas national leadership because, uh, you know, that's just more efficient and effective. Well, I mean, sure, but to what end? To what aims? Um, so people end up sort of um, disempowering more unified power 
if they are become concerned that they, their political questions may be um, under threat under such a power, or they don't feel represented uh, by that authority, by those communications uh, strategists or the, the, the types of people who sort of, it, it, you know, and so, so this uh, emphasis on democracy becomes, at the end of the day, somewhat anti-democratic, better to break up into a loose confederation of, of movements and uh, subgroups and caucuses than risk losing the political argument to people who end up kind of controlling uh, the organization in a, in a direction that's even maybe slightly different from the way that I would like to see it. Um, this is something I'm thinking a lot about in the U.S. context. Does any of this ring true for you and your thinking of, of, of this uh, dilemma on the, you know, the, the movement left in, in Britain? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, I, I'm not calling for an actual party with a line which then has to, you know, has to be followed. I think we're, you know, I think we're some way off that. Um, but I think there are there are enough grounds for more formalized cooperation and more formalized alliance and pooling of resources on some questions. And this is going to happen in, a, in an iterative way, right. not in a grand plan way. Okay, I see. Uh, you know, if, it, if it were to happen at all, I so think sort of that, ad hoc problem solving basis. Uh, hey, we have similar interests here. How, how can we pool resources for yeah, this particular and, and, question? And then those things begin to get institutionalized right. somewhat on uh, you know, on something. So I mean, I wouldn't you know expect the um, uh, you know the the XR people, for example, to be you know that majorly excited about what kind of research is being done collectively for the MPs in Parliament into some upcoming piece of legislation. But you know, like they don't have to be. You know, if you know, people respect the different things that different people, you know, that different people are doing. So um, that's a fascinating. I want to sum this up for particular my U.S. audience here. Is that it sounds to me that you, I've just been bopped on the head and rightfully so, and suggested by uh, Mr. James Schneider that uh, you actually work this stuff out in, in in the process of doing politics, not at uh, you know, say national conventions of uh, DSA organizations <laughs> and the like. And perhaps it's the lack of uh, really embedded activity. Uh, and the emphasis on real activity uh, that dooms these kind of uh, navel-gazing organizational disputes. Yeah. I think so. I've got to say, I mean, I... I, I Who'd have I, thought I that to be true? <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> I, I listened, I, you know, I listened to, um, uh, and I find, you know, I, I find it fascinating in a, in a sort of geeky way, as in myself in a geeky way, and, you know, also, you know, thinking back to momentum and the, and the parents and stuff, you know, listening to the interviews you have with different uh, people from different DSA caucuses and hearing them talk about, you know the various different things that they all that they all do, and you know the ones where they talk about actually doing stuff. I feel cool. There's something going on here, but the the, the, the bits which are yes, we're going to work this out at the convention, and we're building a democratic organisation, and we're doing all of these things. You know, part of me thinks, well, yes, of course that's right. You need to build a party to build a party. You need to build the institution. You need to do those things. And then part of me is thinking, like, my God, the people that do well in those situations. Are really not necessarily the activists who go and do the stuff, right? Yeah, and then and they're not and 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 you know they're not necessarily the, the activists that will want to build the local alliance between the um, you know uh, the BLM XR Sisters Uncut and uh, and the Communication Workers Union or the Fire Brigades Union or Unite you know or whatever or, or the or the local Labour Left or the Momentum Group or in order to perform some kind of action. 
some kind of organizing, some kind of action, work with tenants against eviction, whatever it might be, which is the kind of, you know, I think is that's the practical solidarity that is movement building, mm-hmm. uh, out of which you get people that can work together and uh, understand each other's issues. I, I, I think, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, I'm not leaning too far the other way and saying, well, it's all just about ad hoc stuff and you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't worry that much about structure. Of course, you know, of, of, of course you do have to. And we are talking about different things. DSA is trying to build a party, right? You're, right. You're, it's, right. it's not an electoral party, but it is very much, a, you know, it is very much a party. Um, and, you know, whatever it is that I'm calling for is, you know, some degrees you know, but, uh, short of that, because of the different, you know, because of the different context um, in which we're in. But also, you know, the DSA, as far as I'm aware, has no trade unions affiliated to it, right? Right. No, none, none directly. It's trade okay. union kind of representatives that form, you know, labor groups within and around DSA. Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, take even, you know, take you know, momentum. Mm-hmm. Momentum has got five trade unions, I think, directly affiliated to it. Yeah. Um, you know the the, the over, and and you know the overlap is uh, is already you know, institutionally much stronger. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I so so, so I, I you know I think they're they're heading at slightly different you know at slightly different things. There's not a direct there's not a one hundred percent total read across. I think from the US to the UK or vice versa because we are you know we do have we do have different political systems. The democrat you know the Democratic Party is a different beast to the Labour Party. Different aims, perhaps, but I don't know. Maybe that's a lesson. Maybe um, I don't know. I, 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 I certainly don't. I certainly uh, don't imagine myself to be uh, suited to even uh, answer it. But perhaps maybe we shouldn't. Then, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I say kind of silly, outrageous things on the show sometimes. Maybe just to be provocative. But perhaps maybe we shouldn't here. And meaning DSA. Perhaps maybe we shouldn't. Uh, perhaps maybe uh, we're a couple steps ahead of the game, but it, it is what it is at this point, isn't it? You just sort of uh, you sort of uh, play your play your hand as you're dealt, and this is the one that we are dealt. And I think everyone inside of DSA knows the challenges, and and they're not uh, they're not naive to this. Uh, they are not naive to to that to, to those challenges at all. So let's move on here. So I wanted to really dig in there because I think the parallels are interesting in kind of uh, doing this comparative thing that we're doing here. Let's talk about the party. You're talking about kind of a, a pre-party kind of movement, ad hoc affiliation way of getting towards building something that is more stable and institutionalized. How do you get from from movement to party? Well, I mean, or from from party to movement. So, right. we, the the reason why I'm some some people on the left uh, have thrown up their hands at, at the end of Corbyn. And they said, you know, see, you know, either the Labour Party was always going to going to betray us, or it's always going to fail, or all of our energy has gone into this, and it's uh, you know it's a waste. And anyway, you know, the Labour Party is basically trying to kick out, and not I mean by the Labour Party, I mean the leadership, Keir Starmer, basically trying to kick Corbyn out of the Labour Party in a soft way by stopping him from being a Labour, to having the Labour whip. So he's currently sits as an independent, um, even though you know he was let back into the Labour Party membership itself but you know for for me that actually represents in some ways the kind of uh neoliberalization of common sense thinking about the party you know is a party something that you're basically a fan club for and it and it it represents your identity 
right? You like, you really like it, you join, you really support it. So you share the memes on social media or whatever. You give it, you give it your money and it, it represents you and you feel it represents you. And then when it doesn't, you're appalled by it and you leave because it doesn't represent you and you don't want to share its memes on social media. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I think that's, that represents a very individualised form of, you know, political conception, which is, I think, at odds with, um, you know, the, the sort of strategic socialist approach that, 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 that Leo took and that I'm trying to take, which is that, you know, institutions are contested. And you know the, the the Labour Party is not an individual organisation for the for the leader, and it isn't just a fan club for a team at Westminster. It is an organisation that is in that is part of the state, but is organically linked to the organised working class. It has this dual uh, identity. It has this conflict running through it, and people have it's an it's an important institution in British society, and people have some ownership over it. Now that you know, the, you might like the leadership, you might not like the leadership. You might like the things it does or, or or doesn't do. That shouldn't change your necessarily your relationship to it, as long as the avenue for change is still open. The avenue for it being used for some kind of socialist advance, and that avenue being clearer than that of creating some other electoral force. And I would argue that that is the case. Um, uh, unless and until um, the trade union link is broken, so I mean, the, the, for, your, for, for your your audience who probably already know this because you you know you've done so many episodes on the Labour Party and on the foundation of the Labour Party and it's breached with the Liberal Party and all, all the rest of it, but you know the, the, the Labour Party came out directly from the from the trade unions and and still is um, uh, organically linked to the trade unions in that the trade unions hold a whole load of seats on National Executive Committee and have a whole load of votes at party conference. So it still remains the trade unions party. And as, as you know, as long as that is the case, that's that, that is it's substantial. Right. The second thing is um, uh, as long as the leadership remains open to being one from the left. So that's about leadership rules. You know, Jeremy Corbyn was only able to win the leadership in 2015 because they, by quirk, because they changed leadership rules um, in, under the previous leader on the red, Miliband, um, uh, you know, not in order to help the left, um, as it happened. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go into it, but basically, it's it an accident of history. wasn't meant to help the left. Ended up helping the left. Wonderful um, accident. Yeah, we've talked about this quite a bit. So I, I think most of my yeah, listeners will know. You know. We don't need to talk about the you know, Eric Joyce's blessed punch in um, in the House of Commons and all that. <laughs> um, you know. Um, all right. So as long as you know, as long as the leadership can still be won by you know by the left, then the party is still open as a potential vehicle for advance. And then the third element is about selection of candidates. You know, if there is not uh, a supermajority for the right on the national executive committee, and you can still get left candidates selected to be MPs um, or uh, to um, become, you know, to go into local government, go into the, the, the councils or mayors of, of towns and cities, boroughs uh, around the UK. As long as you can do that, then it's then it then it's a viable then it's a viable vehicle. That doesn't mean that um, you think it's the you know if you take that position, you think it's perfect or that you support everything that it's doing or that you're a cheerleader for the leadership. It's just a cold 
clear-eyed, hard-headed, right. uh, you know, strategic assessment, which is, uh, you know, that there is no clear path, but this is the clear, this is the clearest path, and it would be silly to basically blow it up without an alternative. Right, and I, I might add a fourth which I think you allude to in one of your pieces, I believe if I'm not, not mistaken, is that as long as the trade unions are at least relatively controlled by elements of the left. Yeah. Not I, mean, to be, I mean, in the, you know, the U S context, that's not something to be uh, taken for granted that the trade unions could, could come to your uh, rescue from time to time as they have over the past few years there. No, I mean, uh, n- n- not at all. I mean, and really that the, the thing I was saying about the, the super majority for the right on the National Executive Committee, I mean, if the more trade unions go to the right, right, then there will be a super majority for the right on the National Executive Committee. And that's, that's very, that's very dangerous. Um, and actually, it's a, it's a recent quote, it's basically a, a, a revolt against Blair that pushed the lots of the trade union leaderships to the left, you know, historically, um, the the you know the Labour Party, um, the Parliamentary Party, the the MPs were you know lent towards the the right, but ha- always had a big body who were from the left. That's not the case. I mean, even after five years of Corbyn, you know there are it's fifteen percent of the Parliamentary Party of fifteen percent of Labour MPs are on the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it's it's um, uh, you know it's overwhelmingly twenty uh, percent the most generous reading, right? It, it's overwhelmingly uh, on on the right. Whereas under under Blair, there was this revolt within the trade union membership who elected some 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 left wing general secretaries, uh, and that's you know that's not assured at the moment. Um, you know the the biggest trade union United is having its general secretary election, and you know from when we're 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 we're, we're talking now, which is on uh, on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday the eighth of of June. Um, currently, there are three left candidates and one right candidate who who have enough nominations to get onto the banner. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they, they all go ahead, the right candidate will win. Yeah. And that is, uh, you know, that is of absolute central strategic importance for for socialists in the UK because if we if we lose unite, you know, that is a massive block of seats on the Labour NEC. That is the trade union with, I think, you know, the biggest fighting funds, the biggest assets, um, the largest private sector membership, you know, huge influence in British society, which will which will be lost to, uh, you know, which would be lost to the left and, um, and you know, and would really close, you know, could potentially close down the, la- the, the, the Labour Party as a, you know, as a viable vehicle, because that that is what we will see from the the anti-socialist and Labour Party, I think, a little bit of conference this year in September, but I think a lot of conference next year in September, are our efforts to close out the left from future leadership and from being future candidates. Uh, and, you know, Unite's votes on that will be absolutely crucial. So in essence, to sum it up, um, if you ignore power, power doesn't ignore you back. Yeah, um, yeah, that's, 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 that's the that's essence of it, uh, power and institutions. And so... Um, there's a passionate plea to, uh, to to remain, if not in the Labour Party, certainly a very uh, committed to the principles of of trying to keep socialism relevant and powerful, at least in some extent, uh, if not more so, inside the Labour Party. Let's talk about the state, because this is really where all of this comes together. And a lot of the most critical insights, I think, it's strategic, strategically speaking, uh, the, the left needs to be very, very, very concerned with. 
uh, moving forward. And there were some bright spots, um, you know, in the, both the, the kind of transatlantic context here, where we're talking a lot about non-reformist reforms. And, 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 and I was thinking about this just earlier this morning as I was preparing for this interview, thinking about what, what, what I'd like to talk to, to James about. And, and one of the things I'd like to discuss with you is the relative disappearance of that conversation on the left. And, and it, I was wondering why. Why is it? Maybe people became disillusioned with the disappearance of, of Medicare for all, with uh, you know, the disappearance of uh, card check and unionization rights here in the U.S., uh, you know, obviously the defeat of Corbyn and, and, and all of the tragedy and trauma that has followed. Uh, but I think it's more than that. I think it was, you know, a certain wing of the left really came into being. This kind of uh, democratic socialist wing of the left came into being on the back of that argument uh, in favor of non-reformist reforms to break our way out of a very just crude, um, you know, uh, insurrectionist, Leninist kind of quasi Leninist, you know, uh, smash the state sort of approach that the, the the longtime left has carried in the late, you know, certainly in the late 20th century, while remaining almost entirely out of power um, in most consequential areas of the world. What happened to non-reformist reforms, and how how does this play into the way that you were strategizing the way that socialists ought to ought to compete for state power? So I mean I. I think first off, actually, the debate in the UK didn't really ever get that far. I mean, I, I, I think our our collective understanding of what we were going to do in the state was was really quite weak, um, and this played out in our you know in in, in our, our preparations for government, which were very detailed. But you know, they focused on which bits of legislation we're going to pass and sort of treated the state a bit like a neutral in- instrument that was going to you know be able to either just perform the functions that we wanted to perform or these new institutions that we're going to set up and you know if you look at our program uh you know it is a it is a great program our, our manifestos you know there are a lot of new institutions there's a national investment bank there are regional development banks there there's uh there, there's a whole host of new uh new state institutions that were going to be which are going to be set up and you know, of course, there was some some detailed thinking about how those that those would be, but really not quite enough in the way it, it, in which you're you're laying it out. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that and to be clear, uh, in the U.S. context, I'm talking about a narrow sliver of say Jacobin yeah, contributors. <laughs> Certainly sure. not, uh, you know, AOC's, um, you know, uh, you know, um, chief of staff or whatever, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, but I mean, I I don't even think you know, I don't even think we had that, even though. You know, within uh, you know our leadership, you know, we had um, you know, John McDonnell, who has experience in the state. He was the, the 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 finance, basically like the equivalent of the Treasury Secretary for London right. in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, uh, and you know, it, it has you know has read all of Leo and all of Gramsci, and we talked about in and against the state and all the rest of it. Uh, but and you know there are other you know other people um, in in senior positions. You know John Trickett, his PhD supervisor was Ralph Miliband. Mm-hmm. Seamus Milne is uh, you know is, is completely conversant with all of this stuff. Nevertheless, that wasn't um, you know wasn't our main driver. So I, I, mm-hmm. w- without getting before we get a bit too abstruse, I'm just going to sort of lay out very simply um, what 
you know, what I understand about non-reformist reforms and how they fit into other types of reforms and what your programme of government would look like. So I I think there are three types of of reforms and it's important to get the balance right. And the balance between them is really to do with the balance of forces in society and then the balance of forces within your movement more than technical capacity. And so those three categories are ameliorative reforms. So those are things that you can do basically immediately with existing state machinery to make people's lives better as soon as possible. That's in the UK context, that's basically tax and spend. You can increase corporation tax and you can use that to provide universal childcare, for example. You know, these are these are or to increase spending on healthcare or whatever it might be. These are reforms that you can carry out um, straight away. But they can be reversed straight away by an incoming government. They don't change, uh, they don't fundamentally change the balance of forces. They just improve, they improve people's lives. They're absolutely vital because you're going into government in order to improve people's lives. And also, if you aren't improving people's lives, the support for your government is going to crumble because it's going to be under the most ferocious attack from uh, from power, uh, trying to undermine it anyway. Then your next category are, are strong reforms. So those are reforms that um, that do in some way shift the balance of power in society. So I would view that as things like um, minimum wage laws. They're going to be really firmly fought uh, by the other side. But once you win that fight, they're very hard for the other side to reverse. Mm-hmm. And they strengthen progressive social forces. So they strengthen bargaining power of workers, for example. Um, uh, so, you know, in, in the UK case, in the, the last Labour government, uh, the last Labour government brought in the national minimum wage and it was hugely opposed by the business class and by the Tories, but they won and now it can't be taken away. But uh, the, Gordon Brown had this policy called tax credits, which were you know, basically tax relief to, to lower income uh, people, which uh, gave far more money, was far more redistributive than the minimum wage, but was undone within one year by the new Tory government when it came in. So, you know, th- those, are the, th- those are those types of things. And then you have the non-reformist reforms, which are reforms which point in the direction of further change. So that's things like uh, you know, the National Health Service or, or, or Medicare for All, because it provides uh, a, a, an obvious conception for how you would run in a socialist way, in a human, humane way, uh, a sector of, of society, or things like workplace democracy, things which are building up people's capacity for to, to, to manage themselves, either at work or in their communities, which are longer term changes, but they point in the direction of, 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 of how you can go further. Um, and it creates, and, I mean, as you're saying, it creates a constituency, a, a class in, in, yes. in, its, uh, in its wake. Uh, that are have have an interest in maintaining and broadening those institutions as well. Yeah, as as you're saying, precisely. Yeah, and a slightly you can... finer point on it. I had this debate just yesterday with uh, the publisher of Zero Books about some of this stuff, and he was very blinkered and cynical about uh, non-reformist reform. So I'm trying to present as strong as case as possible. No, no, I mean I, I think you're quite right, and you can you know you can see it with um, you know how they do it on the other side, and 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 that building a constituency is absolutely correct, and that you put that extremely well. So I mean. The, 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 the kind of crucial non-reformist reform uh, that was carried out by Thatcher, you know, non-reformist reform from a, from a reactionary perspective, uh, was um, the, the selling off of the social housing mm-hmm. uh, at discounted prices to try to, you know, to, to undermine co- a, a collective institution 
and give direct benefit to, uh, to, to better off working people who would then have their own home and would clearly be better off for it. But it, you know, marketized vast swathes of housing which would have been de- uh, demarketized. You know, a non-reformist reform in the other direction would, would say would be rather than having universal basic income, having a universal basic dividend, which increase it, you know, and then you socialize more of the economy year on year and the and the annual dividend increases. You're building a constituency that supports the further socialization of society. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I think I I think I think you're right there. That, that's uh, that's fascinating. The way I mean, just that argument alone, I think could have maybe stopped him in his tracks. That's going to play on YouTube. I'll, I'll link that in the show notes if it's available for people to watch. Uh, just as a way of contrasting to our our more sympathetic uh, love fest that James and I are having today. <laughs> There's a debate there where amongst two people who disagreed. Uh, but that, but I wish I had that argument under my belt, James. Damn it, that that you know, look, the other side's going to do it. They're going to they're going to push non-reformist reforms in their direction if we don't. Um, and can and create other constituencies that are not amenable to uh, leftist strategies and tactics. For example, uh, you know, collectives, uh, constituencies of homeowners who are now bound to, uh, you know, property value and, and the movements thereof. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, that's, that's a damning argument. I'm going to keep that one. Good. <laughs> you're, 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 very, you're very welcome to it. So, I mean, I think, I, I, so I, I, you know, I think that our, our understanding of the, of the state and it's, you know how it is it's not a neutral instrument but it has some relative autonomy uh, that we need to create you know new institutions within it to deliver some policies while we can get some policy wins with with the existing infrastructure but then crucially and this is where it fits back into the movement uh point of uh you know uh, argument is every single what you know let's say we'd won and we'd gone into government from that point on, the vast majority of pressure on us is coming from the ruling class. It's not coming from the people. It's not coming from popular forces, democratic forces. Mm-hmm. It is coming from lobbyists, uh, senior civil servants, uh, the, you know, the state and so on, trying to push us in a less radical, uh, less progressive direction. So in order to force through our, you know, our manifesto commitments, we would have needed high levels of mobilization but in society you know we would let's say we wanted to you know we wanted free uh, free higher education abolish tuition fees right uh the civil service would have told us well you know you can't do that for this reason or for that reason or whatever and we come under big pressure and then a lot of our mps would start saying oh no well maybe we should just have a graduate tax instead and you know we'll tax people an extra five percent or six percent or something and uh, you know, they, they can have some loans or, you know, let's be realistic about this and, and they'll try to amend the legislation or whatever. In order to force that through, you need the you need popular power, which is putting pressure on you the other way as a countervailing force. And that's also got to be part of your strategy within the state is how uh, how are you opening up, making the state more porous to uh, to popular interests uh, and closing down its openness to you know, uh, lobbyists, corruption, uh, and, you know, and, 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 you know, basically elite interests. And that's another substantial part of, um, you know, of, of, of state strategy, which I, I think we had, you know, we had a bit, but was basically underdeveloped. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you're a really uh, 
being quite charitable to our ruling class overlords and, and their uh, associated institutions. Uh, that, that, that would be if best case scenario, if they gave us an, an open shot rather than concocting a scandal to distract uh, and, and smear <laughs> the leaders of those movements uh, or, you know, just, uh, just convince the civil service just not to implement uh, the policies and the, the plans and the imperatives of, of the, the governing uh, parties. But anyway, we, we, we digress. Um, because they have, but the bottom line is the state and the ruling class, the ruling class prize fighters in the state have a lot of tools at their disposal, don't they? And we have to develop capacities that can um, outclass uh, those 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 maneuvers and those instruments. Yeah. and that's not so an easy thing. I mean, that is ab- no, the, deck, the deck is stacked against us in, in a very big way. We have to be serious about that. And, and so, one of the things that I call for in this in in this essay on the state is, it, you know, it, it's not just we need to educate ourselves by by book learning. Um, it, we need, you know, socialists in, in the UK and also in, in the US and everywhere, you know, need experience within the state themselves. And in the UK, that means in, in municipal governments, you know, local socialism. Uh, and you know, the, the Labour Party's selection rules for local councillors are actually very open at the, you know, at the moment. Basically, there, is, there, there are primaries every four years, basically, for councillors, or they could be primaries. Um, I, I think you know, maybe audience will find it bizarre, but you know we don't have primaries. But once you're an MP, basically, that's it. You're there, yeah. um, and, and and you know you're you're not up for for, for reselection uh, again, really. Whereas councillors are, so you know, m- members of, of of city councils or, mm-hmm. or or what have you. And I think you know, it, it, as was done in the in in the eighties with the the Greater London Council and in many other places. Um, uh, socialists should try to enter local government to have experience of, of uh, you know, one just, you know, how how do you play cat and mouse with um, some civil servants who don't want to do what you want to do? How do you get around them? How do you learn when to be a bulldozer? When do you learn to go around the outside? How do you build alliances? How do you show the force of, of, uh, of popular will on a particular issue? Um, and also to experiment with uh, with with opening up governments, you know, with more participatory forms of uh, of government involving trade unions and movements more uh, within the operation of local government, and I think you know there's a lot that we could you know we could learn learn from doing. I'm, I you know I I think that um, you know one one of the big failures setbacks things that have been robbed from the the left by forty years of defeat is. Um, because we don't have any experience of doing anything. We don't have any experience of winning. We don't have experience of, of, uh, of, of being in office, of trying things and, and so on. We sort of retreated into a sort of intellectual only, theory only space. Right. And actually a lot of the time, uh, theory is informed by practice, not just the other way around. You know, we, 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 we work out in some ways after the fact you know, what is the theory that we can bolt on to what's actually going on and what we've found in, in, in reality? Right. Absolutely. I think some of the most exciting work coming out of, you know, this moment or is coming from people like you and others uh, who even, you know, uh, uh, Kel Horror, you know, uh, engaged in Democratic Party primaries, you know, elections and worked as staffers for insurgent candidates. Um, you know, and these are the people who were much maligned by some socialists on the left as kind of sellouts and party op- operatives and apparatchiks and all the rest of it. And and um, that's why I have a, a, a much larger degree of 
um, excitement, curiosity with these folks. I've had some on the program recently to talk about um, what it means to work in and around and through the Democratic Party, which is, you know, just it was an absolute apostasy on the left for for many decades. Um, and yet it's the only way to get real experience in the state, in government, in order to come back to the movements, in order to come back to the parties and, and, the, and the real committed socialists to decide how do we engage in this thing uh, practically? How do we what, what what pieces of our theories and strategies need to be need to be modified at best, if not completely jettisoned? And we only know that by trying and uh, getting out of the seminar, the graduate seminar room. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm with that 100%. The point is to change it. Absolutely. So we're, we're, we're running low on time. That's on me. I am uh, nothing if not verbose. Uh, so let's talk about the last two very quickly. And then I want to sum it up with um, a challenge uh, that was posed to you by a, a, a fellow traveler on, on the socialist left. And I think it's going to ring very... Um, could be very comparable to the kind of debates that are happening in the U.S. context about whether the Democratic Party, what it even means to be a socialist and and, and engage in electoral politics or, or anything like it. Um, very briefly, and I know this is this is going to be giving both of them short shrift. You talk about the world, that is to say, internationalism, and you talk about uh, the media, which is perhaps even more important in your context, even even. And then, then in the U.S. context and elsewhere, um, for the reasons that we spoke about, uh, your <laughs> your aristocracy has not uh, been shamed in the same way that uh, the the American uh, capitalist class has been. So, um, very briefly, internationalism. How does it play into all of these laid out stuff so, uh, thus far? So, I think I will. I'll just choose one thing in each of those two two essays to to, to talk about them for the time. So, um, on the uh, on the international question, and I'll come back, to, and I'm, I'm going to use the progressive international uh, example. If that is that drilling too bad, it's it, it, it's it's passable. We're we're in the era, we're a year in here, so people are used to the dogs barking and, and everything else. So it, it'll, it'll be okay. I'll I'll just start that. Okay, so I'll I'll use I'll talk about one thing that I talk about in each of those in in in, in each in each essay for, for time. So uh, within internationalism. The one, the, one of the things that we're working on with uh, Progressive International is the, uh, call, is the Make Amazon Pay campaign, which is uh, which brings together a coalition of over fifty organisations, uh, including all the really all the trade unions, all their federations that um, uh, represent Amazon uh, Amazon workers either directly or in the supply chain, mm-hmm. uh, with environmental groups, tax justice groups, uh, and you know and other activists. Uh, to uh, to to confront the common enemy, but uh, the common enemy across borders, across sectors, and throughout the chain of capital. So the thesis is that um, uh, capital's value chain runs from you know the mine to the tax haven, and mm-hmm. at, at every step it generates different antagonisms, and the the those that are resisting it at different steps are often completely not in conversation with each other, let alone within the same, same campaign. Mm-hmm. So at the at the mine, the, you might have a labour struggle, you might have an environmental struggle, you might have uh, an indigenous land struggle. You, you've got various different types of labour struggles throughout the value chain, some of them in subcontractors, some of them uh, in completely outsourced, some of them on contract work, some of them salary, all the way up through... Uh, to, um, to, 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 to 
um, you know, retail and so on, through to, to tax justice and, and tax havens. And what we're, what we're trying to do is um, articulate all of those different struggles together under a common banner, Make Amazon Pay, against a common identifiable enemy to, to build a model for meaningful international action. Um, and so we launched that uh, on, on Black Friday, November, I think it was the 27th of November of last year. And we had simultaneous strikes and, and, uh, and, and actions in 15 or 16 countries around the world. Um, uh, and then followed up a week later with, um, I think, over 400 MPs from 35 countries on every inhabited com- continent in the world saying that they back the demands for the campaign and that they want to, uh, that, you know, that they will try to bring forward legislation in their respective parliaments to bring those, uh, you know, to bring the demands into, into effect. And then just two weeks ago, we had, a, we had another day of action where um, we were introduced to some uh, in both Bangladesh and Cambodia workers who work for suppliers for Amazon. They're in Amazon supply chain, but basically the factories they work for, Amazon was the biggest customer. And they both the factories got shut down in the pandemic, despite Amazon making massive profits, um, because basically because of their trade union activities. Right. And uh, you know, through this new infrastructure that we built, this global infrastructure of Make Amazon Pay, we could organise a day of action where they took action outside the factories with the demand that Amazon pays them their back pay that they're owed, their severance pay, and reopens the factories with solidarity actions from delivery drivers, warehouse workers in some, you know, over 20 countries around the world, um, uh, people that are either am- direct Amazon workers or not Amazon workers who work for su- suppliers or not, all saying we all work within Amazon supply chain. We make Amazon's profits, whether formally Amazon is paying our wages or not, and we stand in solidarity with each other and we are working together to make Amazon, to, to, to make Amazon pay. And I think that um, you know, this is... This is hugely significant in national contexts because um yeah, you know because amazon is a you know amazon is a big deal obviously in the in in the us and the uk but it also gives you know gives lie to the argument that you know national governments say well we can't do anything these right. these uh these 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 uh, i mean maybe less of this is the case in the us you know you are still the the center of the global empire but i mean here the government say well you know there's very little that we can really do and they'll just go away and mm-hmm. you know we we can't really clamp down on them at all well if you can point and say well what do you mean you can't clamp, clamp down on them we, they're, they're people acting from uh from you know uh chittagong to chile to wherever right. uh against them that uh that that strengths that so i encourage people go have a look at makeamazonpay.com and um and get get involved there now, I know we're short for time, so I can move on to the media one quickly. So, so if I may summarize really quickly, I think this is really fascinating the way you're laying this out. And, uh, you know, capital, we as we know, uh, it transcends state boundaries. It pushes and expands all uh, who that and who oppose it. It nestles everywhere, as Marx wrote much more poetically than I just laid it out. Uh, so you got you to gotta follow it everywhere. Capital goes everywhere. You got to follow it everywhere. You have to, you have to oppose it everywhere, and that's the, the most matter-of-fact way of, of of sort of laying out the internationalist um, imperative. It really transcends the kind of like eh, sort of quasi-third worldist and even kind of moralistic ways of uh, talking about well, the, the the you know relatively worse suffering of the various oppressed peoples across the the, the world, which is absolutely true, uh, but I think it's insufficient. 
Uh, so I love the way you did that. So let's move on. So then on, you know, then I, I guess I'll talk about just one thing in the, in the media, uh, you know, how we win the media essay, which is fits back into this idea of, of, of movements. And then this idea that I'm going to develop in, the, in, in my book of movement populism, which is, um, it's the is the attention economy. The the right are unbelievably good yeah. at, uh, at at grabbing attention, shifting controversy in, in in their direction. Let me I mean let me give you a couple of UK examples from the last year, which you and your listeners will find unbelievably familiar, and you will mm. you you you'll go oh that's exactly the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Last summer, George Floyd is killed. Wave of protests course across the US but not just across the US in the UK they're really big uh, and um, and hugely supported all the polls show they're massively supported uh, the Premier League football uh, or as you guys call soccer you know a, a basically adopts Black Lives Matter as a, as, a, as a slogan it's on the players shirts huge popular support they're you know really are protests everywhere in you know everywhere in the country um, and they start tearing, you know, tearing down statues of slavers in Bristol and 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 in other other places. Put them, in the, course, put them in the sea. <laughs> yeah, put, yeah. I mean, literally, put them in the sea. Get in uh, the sea. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this is frightening for a a right populist government, uh, which is what we've got. In, in, we've got a very effective right populist government. I mean, I don't mean effective in terms of governing. I mean, in terms of being right populist and and uh, maintaining support. So what you know what 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 do they do? They board up the statue of Churchill in Parliament Square. Unbelievable genius! <laughs> Unbelievable genius! No one is saying they're going to touch the statue of, of Churchill, but then immediately after that, <laughs> that's what it is. Then, then you get bands of bands of men going yeah. and defending war memorials in 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 random towns across the UK where there's no risk to any of the war memorials. It's all yeah, the right. Yeah, yeah. And the attention is, is focused there. And of course, the pathetic um, uh, and um, self-defeating Labour Party leadership um, plays into this by saying, oh, yes, you know, there should be 10-year jail sentence for people to face the Churchill statue, which no one has said they're ever going to deface, right? And it, and it shifts the attention perfectly. Then they follow this up with... they the, Labour the leaders started wearing poppies in the shower, you know? Uh, for- <laughs> uh, and, 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 and then the... Then the um, the, the government followed this up with um, uh, setting up this this new basically anti-invasion force about um, you know uh, a few dinghies of, uh, of of desperate asylum seekers crossing the channel trying to get into the UK. Yeah, and they've got you know new commander, this sort of handsome man in a new suit, very media friendly with a new uniform, and they've got these ships going out, and the media can embed and go out with the ships and try to interview the the you know the, the refugees crossing crossing the water. And then the RAF plane, the, the you know um, air force planes are flying up and down the channel, and this is a great media spectacle. Fantastic! They've shifted the uh, they've shifted things onto the thing onto what they want. They did this trick with Churchill statue again um, when there was the Sisters Uncut protest in Parliament Square after the um, the horrific policing of a vigil for Sarah Everard, the young woman yeah. who was killed by an off-duty police officer yeah. on her way home. Police. They they, 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 they they encircled the Churchill statue with police so that then the protesters circled them. So the photo is the Churchill statue being defended mm. by the police, 
And obviously implied is the protesters are coming to attack the Churchill statue. Mm -hmm. The government will defend you against the, the, the ravages of wokeness coming to destroy all that is right, you know, all that is right and good. Um, and what we need to do, I think, uh, you know, especially in, now in the UK, because we can't pursue straightforward left populism because that requires uh, a political leadership that is able to construct a many and a few, a people against an elite um, that is able to to uh, grab controversy, to, 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 to stoke controversy and grab attention and shift it onto our issues and our framing. We don't have that. We've got Keir Starmer. Um, but we can do that ourselves. We can shift the attention if we begin to think a bit like Dominic Cummings and these other, you know, how do they do it? We can do that in reverse. So let's say, for example, that right now there's a, a, a health bill is trying to go go through. And we, you know, I'm sure all your listeners know we have National Health Service in the UK and it is very good and it's the most civilised thing about the country. And it's the most popular thing pretty much uh, in the country. Um, which is why the Vote Leave campaign and Dominic Cummings and so on have made, were at such pains to wrap themselves up in the NHS logo and did so so um, so effectively. Um, uh, but um, there's been you know efforts to privatise and outsource the the NHS now for you know 25, 30 years, um, 30 years really under Tories and also under New Labour. Uh, and there's another you know there's another um, law. That they're trying to bring forward. It will open up more of the health service to you know, American healthcare companies and for profit healthcare, and so and so on and so forth. Now, how would we respond to this? You know, it's not getting very much media attention. Well, you know, if some activists went and and occupied the offices of the private healthcare companies and the lobbyists and uh, and the um, and the the comms people that go and work for them, and staged teach-ins and sit-ins and invited the media and got. Got, uh, got celebrities to turn up and so on and so forth, then you create spectacle, then you drag attention to the issues, to the issues that, that you want. Because we live in, for better or for worse, we live in an age of the attention economy. And uh, you know, the left is, in general speaking, far too intellectual and far too concerned with uh, statistics and getting everything precisely right and being very, very rigorous and credible, when really what we should be looking at, I'm not saying that we should be lying, we absolutely shouldn't, I'm not saying we shouldn't be rigorous and credible, but what, what is it that we're, we, we're really trying to do? Where is it that politics takes place? Really it takes place at the zoomed out level, at the, at the level of, 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 of meta-narrative, yeah. that's, really, you know, that's really what's going on, and at the level of spectacle, and if you're going to try to engage people and politicise them, you have to grab their attention when the volume is really turned down, mm -hmm. really, really, really turned down, mm -hmm. and then slowly turn up for them and get them to uh, and, and get them to notice. And so, uh, you know, it's it's that kind of uh, approach to the media that I think um, you know we need to have. Now that should be, I think, that should be coordinated through with um, spokespeople who are a, you know, anybody with a socialist socialist with a platform who can get on mainstream media mm -hmm. should and should be helped to, and there are different ways in which that can that can happen. But you know, we we need to look at the weaknesses in the armor, you know, the, the weaknesses in the yeah, the weaknesses in the armory of. Uh, support for the the, the the system as it is, and to uh, 
uh, you know, and to drag attention to and to drag attention to them because that is exactly what the right uh, yep. does. To They're very good at it. So I want to know when you're getting on TikTok. That's the question I have for you. That's the most important thing. I want to see James Schneider doing a TikTok dance, uh, expounding upon uh, the importance of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, <laughs> democracy at the workplace or whatever. Um, that, would, that would be good. I think, I think you know, may, maybe the next Jeremy might get. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jeremy could do uh, the latest uh, dance to, to, to the latest, you know, had a grime uh, hit, uh, viral yeah, I mean, grime uh, tune. Yeah. The, the one thing, I mean, although, yeah, Jeremy is, uh, the, the, the one thing that I think sounds nice about, um, you know, being a, being a, being a public figure like Jeremy so is, you know, other people, you know, you don't have to spend all your time on social media. Other people will do that for you. I find the idea yeah. of having to spend more time on social media absolutely horrific. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I, could, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. We're running short on time. I'll, I'll have to leave the listeners with the thought of uh, Jeremy Corbyn doing a TikTok dance. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about um, some pushback that you received. It was, I think, really uh, possibly generative. Um, but I will post that in the show notes instead. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe we'll have you back on to do a part two. The book is going to be uh, hopefully going to be forthcoming in the, maybe by the end of this year. Is that too soon? Are you going to pump no, this that's out in time? Uh, uh, it, it, it's probably not going to come out until um, Labour Party conference next year. So that's I September. So, so the, we're, we're, we're pacing ourselves here. I, I keep forgetting there aren't the, the deadlines that I'm used to to get these things out are, are not quite. That's not quite the case anymore, is it? No, no, sadly not. I, I think my manuscript is is meant to be in at the end of September, but then it takes w- almost a year to, you know, to, to 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 get it out. So we'll um, you know, we'll we'll see. But uh, you know, there's there'll be other stuff to talk about perhaps yeah. between now. Probably for the best to have more digested takes. Uh, we don't have the kind of hot house environment that um, that the last four years has um, has produced, and it's time for all of us maybe to take a deep breath. Uh, as I mentioned last week, everybody chill the fuck out. Uh, we have a lot of work to do and a lot of thinking to do, but we need to do it together um, and as charitably as possible. So uh, you are a, a beacon of charitable comradely debate, Mr. James Schneider. Thank you so much for coming on DPS. Let's do this again real soon. Thank you for having me. It's great to chat.